Welcome back to Between the Pages, which is a podcast meant to inspire Christ followers to go deeper in their faith and theology by engaging books from a Christian worldview. Uh, I'm your host, Joel Nevius, and I'm here as always with one of my favorite people in the world, uh, Mark Krause. Uh, great to see you today, Mark. How you doing? Thank you, Joel. I'm doing great. It's good to be here. And how are you? Yeah, I'm good. You know, it's been it's been a little while. <laughs> it, it has. We have. Uh, had a hiatus uh, in between the last recording and this one. Yeah, I wish, you know, I could say that there was a really, really fantastic reason, like we were traveling or doing, you know, something crazy. But at the end of the day, just uh, let we're ourselves get away. Fizziness overtook us. Yeah, yeah. So um, if you've been, you know, just waiting on the edge of your seat for a new episode... Uh, all 1.5 of you, then I hope <laughs> that today is a, a big payoff. But, uh, but regardless, Mark, it's always good to, to be with you, and, um, and I'm excited uh, to continue to dive in uh, to the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Yes. And so last time we were together, uh, Mark, we dove into chapters 4 and 5, and uh, which was really good. We talked about prayer. We talked about other things, um, mm-hmm. contented worldliness. So if you're tuning in for the first time, I'd love to just encourage you to check out some of the previous episodes to help you get uh, caught up. But, but Mark, um, you know, there may be some listeners who are tuning in for the first time, and, sure. and they're like, the screw tape letters? What the heck is that? And so if you could just maybe give uh, maybe just a 20, 30 second, just summary of what is it that we're reading, what's it about, and what we'll be discussing. Yes. The Screwtape Letters were written by C.S. Lewis, who is largely recognized across uh, Christian uh, traditions as being probably one of the greatest Christian thinkers of the 20th century, the last century, and, um, and Christian apologists, really, in terms of arguing and defending a Christian worldview and why that makes sense of all of life. And so he wrote this book from the very interesting and unique perspective of demons or evil angelic beings and their existence and him imagining through fiction and story, which he was excellent at, just an excellent storyteller, but imagining what it would be like for one demon to be mentoring an apprentice on how to handle the person who's been assigned to him. And so the Screwtape Letters gets its name from Screwtape, who is the chief or mentoring demon, writing to his nephew Wormwood, um, advising him on how he, on strategy and things to avoid for working with his patient, as he's called in the book, uh, a, another young man or, or a young man, and mostly just how to trip him up and the strategy to get him out of the enemy's camp to, at a very minimum, to make him ineffective as a Christian, if not to turn his heart if he can. Absolutely. Well, thanks for that that summary. And, and like I said, if you haven't uh, if you haven't done this yet, like we're this this podcast is meant to kind of walk through this book and give you some highlights and to give you some things to chew on. And so we encourage you, like this, this isn't meant to substitute reading it. This is just a, a real added bonus. But if you don't have a chance to buy the book and you know have a hard time finding 10 bucks, totally get it. Um, I totally understand. But we do encourage you, if you don't have Screwtape Letters, grab a, grab a copy off Amazon. 
and uh, follow along with us. And so today we're going to focus uh, on chapter six and seven. We're going to try to get through two. Um, I God think willing. we can. I think we can do it. Mark. We can. We can. <laughs> um, so, and, and chapter six and seven. Just to give you a quick preview, we're we're going to go more into it. But chapter six and seven. Um, has a lot of different topics um, that Lewis addresses through screw tape. And just a couple things we're going to talk about is anxiety. We're going to be talking about um, going to extremes in the way that we view things. Um, and even this addresses such things as social causes and um, and movements and things like that. So we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about those things and and, and, a, and a bit more. But Mark, why don't we why don't we just go ahead and dive right into uh, chapter six? Yeah. Um, and there's lots of things that this chapter raises. But I'm going to begin um, by reading the first paragraph for our listeners to kind of set the stage uh, for our discussion of, of chapter six, um, where the beginning part touches on the topic of fear and anxiety. So let me let me just start out with this first this first paragraph here. My dear Wormwood. I'm delighted to hear that your patient's age and profession make it possible, but by no means certain, that he will be called up for military service. We want him to be in the maximum uncertainty, so that his mind will be filled with contradictory pictures of the future, every one of which arouses hope or fear. And there's nothing like suspense and anxiety for barricading a human's mind against the enemy. He wants men to be concerned with what they do. Our business is to keep them thinking about what will happen to them. And so, Mark, as we kind of launch off here into, into chapter 6, yeah. uh, what are some things that, that really strike you um, about this paragraph or the opening part uh, of this chapter as we dive in? Yeah, so to just to highlight part of what you read, and it was so good, what really struck me was this idea of the demonic strategy of maximizing uncertainty, suspense, and the fear and anxiety that comes with that. And so the word picture that Lewis paints here is screw tape saying basically that they want to barricade a human's mind against the enemy, the enemy being God. And and so I, I just saw this picture of how and we can all relate to this, how anxieties and fears of nebulous future threats, or maybe what is a real threat, but we just have exaggerated thoughts about it, how those things really do pile up like a barricade in our mind and how it's not surprising that our enemy would want to keep piling on that and would have us focus on the objects of our anxiety and fear that, that aren't true. They're, they're all about potential things that could happen. But get our minds so focused on things and so full of those things that it acts like a barricade, actually, in our relationship with God and being able to hear from him and the voice of the Holy Spirit. So that was a really powerful word picture for me. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what's interesting um, and I, to, I, I think that picture is very right on as far as what it feels like. If you oh, yeah. wrestle with worry, with you know, if you wrestle with anxiety, you know how hard it is to kind of to peek above that barricade and see what's actually real and what's actually true. Yes, um, yes. It, it does have a, an effect on you. You just feel trapped and you feel stuck. 
But I thought it was so interesting when he talks about this. Um, when he when he's talking about creating that maximum uncertainty and barricading our minds, and he says that that happens through filling uh, our mind up with contradictory pictures mm. of the future. And I thought that was really fascinating to think about um, the thoughts that we get. Sometimes what we focus on are just across the board and they're not rational we're we're entertaining lots of different contradictory thoughts yes what if this yes. happens or what if that happens and then we don't stop and kind of think through it and be like that actually doesn't make sense mm-hmm. why do i have contradictory fears or hopes or you know what i mean so i don't know if like that kind of struck you in a in an interesting way but yeah um I thought that that was really fascinating that a lot of times we get fixated on things that couldn't all simultaneously be true if they all happened. Well, you know, that that actually I hadn't planned on commenting on this, but that brought to mind something that one of the things that counselors and psychologists will have people do when they're really struggling with anxiety is to journal and to write down all of the thoughts that are coming to your mind because most of the time you'll be able to look at them then and see how irrational and ridiculous they are. Mm. But until we really take a look at, you know, until we recognize, hey, I'm in this state of mind and focusing on the fact that I'm just experiencing anxiety and, of course, there's physical effects in your body and brain that that, uh, start taking place with anxiety that make you almost feel trapped by that feeling. But if you realize that it's a passing feeling rather than on focusing on all of the anxieties that may or may not happen in the future, then it's overwhelming. There's no way to deal with it. Um, So it it is such a vital point to uh, make that switch from focusing on the objects of our fear and anxiety and to recognize the state that we're in and really the irrational nature of it, the conflicting nature of it. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes the irrational, but also like the improbable as well. Absolutely. Because I find in my own life, like a lot of my anxieties Uh um, come from just looking at a myriad of possibilities. Mm -hmm. Right? But they're not, but they're not all equally probable. No, you know, no. and it has a way of just saying, "Well, what if this happened?" I call it—I call it anxiety, basically having the case of the what ifs. Mm-hmm. You know, we can. God has made us imaginative creatures, where we can foresee and think about possible scenarios and distinguish between different paths right, and right. outcomes. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge blessing that helps us to think through things well. But sometimes we're entertaining possibilities that like have a 0% chance of happening or is so improbable yes. that it, there's no use in wasting that time, but we still get fixated on them. So what if that happens? I need to prepare, yeah. you know? We do, and almost by definition, anxieties are overstated and exaggerated um, and are unlikely to happen. It's yep. just, you know, we're, we're entertaining so many that it's... Uh, it's unmanageable. Yeah, there's absolutely. really no way to, and and I think the fear, there's an underlying fear also that keeps us in that cycle. Is we feel like if I don't think about all these things, then I'm going to lose control. If I don't think about them, right. then they're actually going to happen, which is so counterintuitive. I mean, it's irrational that 
that if I'm in this conscious state of anxiety that I'm going to be better equipped to deal with life or anything mm. else that's thrown at me, even if it's a real threat, right? Um, to hear from God and to be able to deal with the situation effectively as opposed to being consumed with anxiety. So it really is a, it undermines, it's a hideous enemy, it really is. Yeah, but what sticks out right here, like just I think it's worth noticing and mentioning is that there always seems to be just a tiny hint, you know, of truth or there's something that kind of fuels it because here... Yeah, good point. You know, he says that the patient uh, is, is um, uh, you know, has a pretty good chance of being called up for military service, uh-huh. which at this time, you know, as Lewis was writing, this was in the context of World, you know, War, II, World yes. War II, that would be a pretty terrifying thing. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, you know, it, it's worth mentioning that, um, that there are lots of things that can happen in our life. And, mm-hmm. um, but, and like, you know, big things, let's say like job moves or going to a different school or relationships and things like that. These really significant events, yes. right, that could very likely happen, um, but then Satan uses that as a springboard to generate way more impractical like yes. possibilities and anxieties yeah. on top of that. So, uh, so he uses significant things, and I think it's important for us to be aware of that as big yeah. things are coming up in our life to think, okay, well, I think I might um, get attacked in a way, but maybe I'm about to graduate. Okay, I know I'm going to be attacked. Like, okay, what am I going to do after I graduate? So Yeah, excellent point, because one of the things that Scripture really emphasizes about Satan and, and the demonic forces that follow him is that he's a liar. Yeah. And so his, his goal, his main strategy all the time is to distort truth. And even when a, a threat may be true, a potential threat is true, or a circumstance is, he's going to distort it. And for us to buy into that distortion just because we're facing a real threat or some painful circumstance, um, again, is something we have to be conscious of, what's going on, that these, uh, these powers do exist, which we'll talk about yeah. um, in the next chapter. So just, just some really, a lot of meat in this chapter. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're only in the first paragraph. Yeah. Um, but why, why don't we move on a yes. little bit, because yeah. he, he continues to unfold some other tactics in this in this chapter, in chapter six. And so what's right. maybe, you know, one or two other things, Mark, that really stood out to you uh, in this chapter that yeah. uh, that you'd like to touch on? Well, one of the things I think I already alluded to, but he says to Wormwood essentially that the enemy or God wants, uh, wants his people to accept with patience the tribulation which has actually been dealt out to him or her. The present anxiety and suspense, and so the the message there is keep them focused on the objects of their fear and anxiety, which are un- intangible things in the future, and there's really no way to deal with them, and keep them from just accepting as God wants us to that when we face any type of difficult circumstance, painful circumstance, the fear of loss and of something significant in our lives, as you were alluding to, um, to, to accept and bear it, because the sooner that God's children learn to accept and bear the present, even the present experience of anxiety, 
then it gets better. And the truth, this is a truth that I love that I've heard Tim Keller talk about is half of our anxiety is the fact that we're anxious about the fact that we're anxious. Yeah. Um, and we're so anxious that we're in the state of anxiety that we're even experiencing something that's uncomfortable and painful, and it magnifies everything. Where if we accept, as, as Lewis is really teaching us here through this chapter, when we will accept God, that it's God's will for us to be in this moment, to experience this, this pain, the anxiety, when you, when you surrender to God's will, and I would say this has been one of the hugest things in my life that has brought me peace in times, at times when I felt the most threatened, is just coming to the point where it's like, okay, God, I surrender to you. I Whatever happens, I'm in your hands, and I'm going to quit striving against this. I'm going to quit worrying about it. I'm going to focus on you. And so that, that really stood out to me in this chapter as being... Um, screw tape unwittingly telling us what we should be doing right. as Christians to deal with these moments of anxiety. And in summary, that's to know that God's going to give us our daily bread. He'll give us the, man, the manna we need for the day, to use the picture of the Israelites going through the wilderness um, on their way to uh, the land that God had promised them. And we need to focus on the day, you know, be in the mm-hmm. moment with God because God's not in our future anxieties. He's not present there. Right. God's present in the moment with us and to the degree that we let those things go, embrace the moment even though it feels painful, we have a greater ability to be present with God and hear from him. Absolutely. Well, I mean, Jesus talks about this, right? In Matthew 6. Yes. But yes. seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you and you know, it goes past that and he says, "Therefore, Therefore, because of that, don't worry about tomorrow. Right. Okay? Don't worry about all the future possibilities, all the conflicting, contradictory pictures that you have in your mind about what that would be. It says tomorrow, uh, tomorrow will worry about itself. Mm-hmm. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Yeah. Focus on, yeah, we're going to have legitimate trouble, but we need, to, we need to take care of the trouble that's right in front of us today um, because yes. that's real. What's happening tomorrow, a month from now, five years from now, it's not real um, at this point. Which is not to say don't be wise and don't you know make plans and right, things, things right. like that. But No, he's really speaking to ang- feelings of anxiety yeah. or thoughts of anxiety, not in any way you know, uh, disregarding the importance of planning for the future. Yeah. Um, you know, as you, as you say that, Joel, it, it strikes me that implied in what Jesus is saying, and I think it's strongly implied, is that God will always give you the ability to deal with what you have to deal with today. Right. Which is why Jesus is saying, just deal with today's, that's enough, and you'll have your daily bread. You'll have the means to get through today. Um, don't worry about tomorrow. Mm. So it's, uh, boy, you could preach on that for a oh, <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah. And I like what you were talking about as far as... Um, you know, fear and worry and anxiety kind of ballooning as mm-hmm. you just kind of focus in on that. Like, yeah. so further on in, you know, in the chapter, uh, screw tape says, on the other hand, fear becomes easier to master mm. when the patient's mind is diverted from the thing feared to the fear itself, considered as a present and undesirable state of his own mind. 
And when he regards the fear as his appointed cross, he will inevitably think of it as a state of mind. Yes. So, it's it's so, it's so true. Um, <laughs> like, we become so incapacitated when all we do is we don't think of anything. We let the fear, the anxiety that comes our way and that we entertain consume all of our focus. Yes. And when that happens, like, we're toast, you know, because then yes. it's, it's this... Unfermentable, I mean, it's this unfermentable foe. Like we can't deal with it. It's so big. It's so inescapable. It's crippling. It's crippling. Yeah. Why deal? Why even try to deal with this? Mm-hmm. And I've been in that position before when I deal with a lot of panic. The worst part. I mean, anyone will tell you when it comes to like anxiety disorders. Like, yeah. The worst part is. Um, I mean, it's crippling as it is when you suffer from panic and, and things like that and panic attacks. attacks. Yes. Yeah, like you're afraid of certain things, but the worst part is when you're just afraid of being afraid. Yes. You're afraid of the panic. You're afraid of the anxiety, and yeah. then it's just eats it, your soul for breakfast. It feeds on itself, and it just becomes overwhelming. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, so it really is insidious in nature, and so whatever we have to do to focus our minds on God to get into the present and get our head out of all of, you know, to take take captive our thoughts, as Paul says in Second mm. Corinthians. Um, learning that discipline, I think it's a spiritual discipline, personally, yeah. and I think it's a huge one of just learning to do those, those uh, spiritual practices, if you will, to pray in certain ways, to study, to be in the Word in different ways, mm. have fellowship and counsel in different ways that really keeps us in the moment and helps us to take control of our thoughts. And I agree, and I think going along with that, um, I think the problem with anxiety is it puts us in a reactive place mm. where we're just retreating and we're terrified, right? We're like uh, yeah. we're like the yeah. Israelites, and you know, seeing Dave or seeing uh, Goliath come out taunting them, they're just they're terrified and they're paralyzed and they're in a state of reaction. And, um, you know, that's why it's so important when we read like Philippians 4, right? Yes. Uh, don't worry about anything. Okay, so there's the restraining. Let's, let's not do this. But then he says, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Yes. That's the action. It's being proactive and saying, um, instead of retreating and just cowering in anxiety and fear and being crippled by all these possibilities... Mm-hmm. God, by His Spirit, has given us the ability to take a step, to pray even. Like, that's even like going to war against anxiety is just saying, you know what? I should be terrified and I should be crippled, but one thing I can do is I can at least thank God for His goodness and what he and, and and the gospel, I can thank him for that, and I can present my requests and my yeah. worries and everything to him. And so there's a proactive nature to it. Well, there is, and it and it really makes sense when we think about it uh, more deeply. Is that um, it really is the antidote for anxiety because yeah. it's changing your state of mind. It's changing the focus of your thoughts and your mind. It's refocusing what your mind's fo- what your mind is centered on. Um, on being thankful, on praying, focusing your attention on God rather than yourself and the circumstances. And it works. It does. Sometimes it's a struggle for us to, to get there. 
But if we will allow ourselves to take those steps, those actions, uh, the antidote works. Yeah, and it's and it's not always easy. You no, know, it's no. it can be very difficult. But you know, Screwtape talks about this strategy though, and, and he you know as he goes on to talk about um, uh, getting us to be unself conscious mm-hmm. and. Uh, and to concentrate on the object of all of our anxieties instead of, you know, looking, looking at what's really going on. Right. And as a way of deceiving us in this, that's this larger kind of picture of how uh, Satan attacks us. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. It's almost like, it's, it's almost, I think of the movie The Matrix, it's almost like Satan's wanting to keep us in the Matrix, captive yep, yep. to the Matrix of anxieties and fears that really aren't real. We might have real circumstances, but the matrix of anxiety and fear is not real, and he doesn't want us to take um, the blue pill or whatever color yeah. pill it was for us to, to uh, see what reality really is. And, and so that's what they want to keep us from is reality. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, is there anything else from this chapter that kind of that hit you, Mark, that... I don't, there are some other things, but uh, I don't think I'll say anything else because I know we're going to want to move on to chapter seven. But how about yourself? Was there anything else you wanted to emphasize? Um, you know, the last thing, the last thing I would say um, that was really interesting about, about this chapter was how he talks about um, with anxiety or with other things, but keeping us in the realm of fantasy, mm. Keep, keeping us in the realm of what's not real. And yeah. getting us to fixate on those things, and mm-hmm. um, he talks about the fact that um, a real strategy that he has for us is um, he goes in this section talking about malice and benevolence, yeah. and how to get us uh, to live in this place of fantasy. Um, but the, when it comes to our benevolence and to our goodness. And so the strategy looks something like this, is to be benevolent to all these people that you don't maybe know very well, you see on the news, you hear reports, or maybe it's easy to cut a check and send off to a faceless organization. Missionary in another country. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, oh, I love that person. Look Look at this act of benevolence I've done towards that person. Yes. And so our he talks about our virtues living on the living outside of ourselves and in our fantasy world, but then in our will and in our heart, mm-hmm. what lives there is malice. And so um, getting us to treat people who are nearest to us with malice. with malice and treating those that we don't have a connection with, uh, with you know benevolence. Yes. And I thought that was really fascinating. And I just feel like it's so true. It's so much easier to love people from a distance. Oh, absolutely. People that we don't really know, people who can't hurt us or offend us, um, and vice versa. And it's easy to feel very righteous about, you know, helping those who we don't know or praying for them. But how willing are we? It's much harder to pray and to show love towards those who are closest to us and who often may bug us or offend us. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) So I, I I just thought that was a real uh, a real interesting yeah. uh, tactic there. Very good. So yeah, there's lots more, but um, in the interest of time, why don't we move on to uh, chapter seven? Yeah. Um, 
And so as we as we turn to chapter seven in Screw Tape Letters, Screw Tape begins with a discussion. Well, it's kind of fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, about whether it's wise or not for them as demons to make their existence um, uh, known to the patient. Yes. And he kind of kicks off with that. And so did you notice anything kind of interesting about that that interchange and what he's advocating here? Yeah, so on that first question of whether uh, Wormwood should make his presence known or not to the patient, uh, he first says that, our father, our leader, referring to Satan, for the present doesn't want us to. And he, he, he really outlines two strategies. One is, if they do believe, the, the downside of causing them to be aware of our presence is when we do that, we then can't make them materialists and skeptics. And so one of the strategies, and I think it's been the biggest strategy in our modern technical society and the kind of uh, wealthy culture we live in with all the physical luxuries and technology everything that we have so much more than the majority of the world certainly satan's goal there is to cause us to be focused on the material you know one of the big worldviews in our culture is that the physical world is all there is uh, physical naturalism Mm -hmm. and the belief that there is nothing supernatural there is no god there are no angels and there's no demons yeah and so to the degree that they can uh that they can get us to be materialists we, we will be skeptical about the presence of supernatural beings and therefore god right and that's in their favor um on the other hand uh If they well, yeah. So, so the flip side of that is, if they are aware of their presence, they can cause a certain amount of fear and superstition and all those things. But then they lose the advantage of of making us materialists and skeptics. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I thought that was that was really interesting because yeah, we we do see that kind of played out in in our culture here. Like what you, what you said, like we live in a very disenchanted uh, culture mm-hmm. where everything that you know, I feel like there was there was a lot of mystery, you know, a, lo- a long time ago, which is mm. neither good nor bad. But like, right. you know, when people would look up to the the stars, they're like, "What is that? Like, wow, this is this enchanted world or all these possibilities." And we found out, oh, those stars are they're you know, it's a ball of gas that's on fire, right? And and so we live in a in a world where we've discovered a lot, which is great, and science yes, is awesome, yes. and like man, a huge blessing. Um, but because of that, we've also kind of gone to the extreme, like well, we've learned how all these things work physically, therefore right, all right. that exists must be physical, and so we've disenchanted the world of anything kind of supernatural or unexplainable. And yeah, yeah. if we can't explain consciousness right now, we will, 50 years into the future, we will understand the physical underpinnings of this or, you know, that's, or other things. Yeah, that's such a great point, contrasting kind of ancient peoples with modern peoples because the it's easy for scientists, technologists, and us living in modern society to look back on ancient people and say, well, they were dumb, they were superstitious, all these things. But I don't know if that's so much true as just the fact that they, when they looked up at the stars in the heavens, they recognized the beauty. And right. they were rightly in awe mm. about the universe and, and the earth and, and just life itself. 
And the more that we have gained understanding about how those things work, ignoring the fact that they not only appear incredibly designed, but the data seems to support that in so many ways, especially just the complexity of life. Even though we've learned that a a star is a huge ball of gas, it we have a it seems like with our understanding of it we've lost the sense of awe and beauty that is still rightly there so we are left we have lost something in some ways that the ancients had that was just as vital to life as modern science well i mean it'd be kind of like going into an art gallery right yeah and you can approach you know a painting in a couple different ways yeah you good, could sit back, yes. right, and you could say, whoa, look at how beautiful this is. There's some, like, spectacular meaning in this. You know, this is amazing. Someone could approach it that way, and then another person could say, well, that's just paint, and the paint is made from, here are these chemicals, and here's the composition of that. Yes. Therefore, there's nothing special about it. And so we kind of, you know, we can yeah, end up in a... excellent example. So, uh, and if you enter the art gallery with the worldview that artists don't exist, then how are you going to end up viewing the paintings? <laughs> right. Absolutely. In the way that you just described. This is just a, a yeah. bunch of chemicals composing ink and paper. Yeah, absolutely. So, but, I, but I don't know about you, but one thing I've noticed in our, in our culture is that we have been, um, we have been under the influence of, of uh, metaphysical naturalism for a while now, mm-hmm. you know, and you know the effects of the Enlightenment are still ringing true. But I, I think there's starting to be a little bit of a hangover from this. And what I mean is, I believe that people they're yeah. so quick to jump on this because it shows that there's not a need for God. Mm-hmm. If we can explain everything through natural and physical causes and, and, and things such as that. One thing that Lewis is pointing out here that I think is fascinating, um, uh, he says, um, basically, Screwtape says, hey, I have great hopes that we shall learn in due time how to emotionalize and mythologize their science to such an extent that what is, in effect, a belief in us, though not under that name, will creep in while the human mind remains closed to belief in the enemy, the life force the worship of sex and some aspects of psychoanalysis may here prove useful. And if once we can produce our perfect work, the materialist magician, the man not using but veritably worshiping what he vaguely calls forces mm, while yes. denying the existence of spirits, then the end of the war will be in sight. Yeah. And what he's saying is, is I think I see this playing out a lot. And, and Lewis saw this coming too, but there's a, a nasty hangover after after drinking from naturalism, and it's that there's still this ache that there's there's got to be something more. There's got to be some meaning behind this thing. Yeah. And yeah. so what you see now, and this is fascinating, you know, people mm-hmm. like Sam Harris and others, thoroughgoing naturalists, and say yeah, there's nothing, you know, God does not exist. There's no supernatural beings, but I still can't shake. The fact that, like, my body and my mind still craves some kind of religious impulse, and so therefore I'll give myself over to, um, to meditation and having experiences in a cave and things like that. And so Lewis is pointing out here that um, that hey, let's let's um, let's find a way to disenchant the world, but then 
mythologize science and forces to create some kind of meaning and fill that void, so to speak. Yeah, to spill the, fill that uh, that void of spiritual reality in our lives. Um, that's really an excellent point, and it made me think of something that uh, has now slipped my mind. So I'm gonna turn it over back to you. <laughs> that's okay. Um, so, anyways, b- b- moving on, I, you know, the big tactic in this chapter yeah. that Screw Tape keeps coming back to, and uh, I'd love to spend the last several minutes talking about this, is he talks about extremes, mm-hmm. and that this is a massive tactic that he uses for that he wants to use for the patient to get him to be unfocused from God and unfocused from the enemy, so to speak, yeah. and that is to encourage extremes in the way that he views the world. Mm-hmm. And he's, he says this, he says, all extremes except extreme devotion to the enemy are to be encouraged. Yes. So, yeah, what did you, what did you make of, uh, of this point and how he kind of unfolds this? Well, he, when he speaks to Wormwood about taking him to two extremes, the situation here that Wormwood has apparently asked Screwtape about is given the war situation that he's facing, do I make him a patriot or a pacifist? Um, a patriot who's, you know, is nationalistic, he's ready to go fight the enemy, in this case, uh, Hitler and the, and the Axis powers, um, and you do that with extreme hatred, take him to that extreme, or do you make him a pacifist? And so Screwtape really implies that that's a false dichotomy. We can use both. So by taking him to extreme, whether he chooses to be a patriot or a pacifist and oppose fighting in the war, doesn't matter as long as you take him to an extreme at either end. And so he says essentially that when you have a culture that's lukewarm, that is complacent, has a contented worldliness, we can soothe them further to sleep. Right. In terms of spiritual things, in terms of our own sin, mm. um, we can, you know, we can, let's just put them to sleep in terms of the existence of evil in the world, which war and suffering tends to awaken in us. Right. Kind yep. of this awareness of, of the reality of good and evil. And on the flip side, he says, when a culture is unbalanced, divisive, and prone to faction, um, then we want to inflame the hatred and the passion of one side against another. Again, going to that extreme. So they're happy with either one, either the patriot or the pacifist, as long as they can um, take them to an extremity. You know, and I, you know, I must say, Mark, that you know this is the part of the book that I just feel is just completely irrelevant to our yeah. present situation yeah. and no our divisiveness culture. in our culture. No, so I'm just, I think we should just skip over yeah. this. We're done. Lewis, We're done. I don't really know what you're talking about here. Uh, no, I think that, I mean, man, Lewis pegged this. Yeah. And and he uh, has prophetically I think spoken into our situation now mm-hmm. that he didn't foresee coming. Um, but we see this all over the place, Mark, and I feel like we see this um, in the church, outside the church, all yes. all over the place, and in, yeah. in, in our country here. But um, you know, what are what are some examples that maybe he gives as far as like those devotions and uh, and things like that? And maybe we can um, 
kind of look at that a little bit further and how that applies to our situation. But what are some of the other things about patriotism, pacifism? What else does he talk about? Yeah, so when I think about what's going on in our culture today, of course, there's a lot of divisiveness politically as well as when it comes to social causes and agendas. And so one of the things... uh, of course, the political side of it probably needs no comment. Everybody is more than painfully aware of how much divisiveness there is there. But the mistake that we often make as Christians is um, we tend to feel like uh, one political party is closer to our values. And so we the, what the enemy wants to get us to do, what, what the demonic forces want to get us to do is bring that party, that political agenda under our Christianity and kind of support that. But Screwtape says, but let that cause, let that, you know, whatever party you're aligned with, whether politically or socially or otherwise, let that become the main thing where, where the, your religion, your faith is just serving that cause. And it becomes God, essentially, mm. um, rather than, well, the opposite. So it's, it's really, again, it's a distortion. It's an extreme to where something becomes an idol in our life. And ultimately, even a cause, what could be a good cause, can become a God to us, to where... And then the, the danger with that, of course, as Christians is that the watching world looks at us and says and identifies our Christianity with the cause rather than with Christ, with the political party rather than with the agenda that Christ has given us to reconcile the world to God. Absolutely. And I think it, it, you know, it, it's worth mentioning that not all causes or social um, causes or agendas are evil and, right. and bad. No. But as Christians, you know, we're called to seek first the kingdom of God, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, and so what he says here, it, it's so true that like so often something, you know, we'll be, we'll be following Christ and then maybe a movement or um, some kind of cause springs up in our culture and we say that seems very Christian and so I'm going to adopt that into my walk with Christ because that's just a that's a natural extension of it maybe right and right. then as we keep going maybe we give more time to the cause we give more of our attention to the cause we give more of our focus we start writing blog posts we start going to every like we, we start going to rallies we start do, you know we just devote an inordinate amount of our focus and attention on this one cause, right. which is valid as it is, yes. needs to be subservient to Christ. And then we flip it. And all of a sudden, this, this cause, whatever it is, has gained all of the weight of our attention and the gospel yeah. is now tagging along. Yeah. And then we say, okay, right now let's... Um, Let's try to retain my Christianity while I really go after this cause or agenda or something like that. Yeah, great, great way of stating it, Joel. And and to give a specific example, um, something that is such a hot button in our society today, of course, is abortion. Right. And as Christians, we believe in the sanctity of human life. Yep. That every, whether regardless of your race, ethnicity you know, country of origin, whether you're male or female, it doesn't matter. We're all created in the image of God. And so every human life has intrinsic value. 
and we believe that's true about uh, boys and girls who are being nurtured and growing inside of a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's not a, a huge difference between them being inside the womb and the day they come out of the womb. Right. Yep. They're equally dependent on the mother and father for mm-hmm. their lives. Mm-hmm. And so it's only natural that we as Christians would want to defend the lives of boys and girls who are yet to be born, even as we should be defending the lives of immigrants mm-hmm. and other people who are oppressed. At all, It's all part of that same category. But ultimately... And, and I think it's right that because we want to save those lives to advocate for laws to protect mm-hmm. the unborn. Yeah. But at the same time, if, that be, if that's the end goal and it stops there, um, how long can you keep that legislation in place if people's hearts aren't changed? Yeah, absolutely. You know, you can win the legislation, but if you don't win people's hearts, if people don't come to to realize, to to know God and to believe that this is inherently wrong, um, then in the end you, you you haven't gained anything in the long term. You've Absolutely. gained a, a near-term victory, but the, the, the ultimate focus of our mission as Christians is to make disciples of Christ, to reconcile people with God, because that really begins to address every other area of life. And so if, when we get focused on one of those areas of life and that becomes all-consuming and the gospel message is lost for that cause, a good cause, um, we're still missing something. And then Christians can be seen, we're just identified as anti-abortionists or or even probably more accurately people who are opposed to women's rights yep. because of the way that argument's distorted. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I just think that, you know, I think the big idea here and, you know, also read a great book I, I would recommend to anyone. It's called The Way of the Dragon and the Way of the Lamb uh, by Kyle Strobel and, and Jamie Gongan. If you haven't read that, it's fantastic. But th- that plays into this because their, I think one of their main theses in that book was to say that so often the church can use um, kingdom means to achieve worldly ends and sometimes vice versa so meaning we can um we can try to accomplish something that's great and might be god honoring but we do it through worldly kind of tactics worldly means yeah yeah but then the flip is true that sometimes we use kingdom things to pursue worldly uh ends at the same time so we can get it. We can get it wrong both ways. Give an example of that. The flip side, using kingdom things to achieve. Yeah. So, for instance, you could use prayer, or you could use all sorts of things, but you're using it for your own purposes. Yeah. Right. Or you could say, yeah, like let's let's try to end abortion, but why? We're trying to. We can easily pursue something good. But then say, well, maybe I gain a platform out of this, or maybe I can run for political party, right. or I can use this to slam somebody else, or just right. whatever the case may be. We can use good things for very for uh, our, for our own ends for our own ends, yeah. and, and and so the main thing yeah, is excellent point. I think what we have to always have um, uh, in mind is hey, whatever is going on, like we need to put that in service to the gospel, in service to the kingdom of God mm-hmm. and to say, we're trying to glorify God 
And this cause helps advances that because you know what? It shows the dignity in this person or that person. And we want to see people come to Christ through that. And yes, so there's, yes. it's all about your motivations and where you're, where you're starting from. Because at the end of the day, um, if you make that cause kind of the end game, yes. then Lewis here through Screwtape talks about the fact that we can gain, we can replace our sense of devotion and religiosity from I want to follow God and here's how it is to live a, a righteous, mm-hmm. loving kind of life to all of a sudden now we're playing by the rules of this cause right. and we measure our devotion and our righteousness based off of are we hitting all the rules that are inherent within this movement or within this cause? And then we become self-righteous very, very quickly. Yeah, um, and, and it doesn't have a lasting impact in terms of, of opening people's eyes to truth. Yeah, absolutely. And so he says this uh, right at the end of this chapter. He says, um, Once you have made the world an end, and faith a means, Mm. you have almost won your man. And it makes very little difference what kind of worldly end he's pursuing, Mm -hmm. provided that meetings, pamphlets, policies, movements, causes, and crusades matter more to him than prayers and sacraments and charity. He is ours. And the more religious on those terms, the more securely ours. And so we can easily turn our devotion over to things um, that are less than God, even though they might be good. And so that's the danger for us as Christians in pursuing extremes. Right, right. We have to be be careful, very careful. Well, and, and, you know, I don't know of a better picture of that in the Gospels than Jesus confronting the religious leaders and saying, you've turned the pursuit of God into rules and regulations that are actually keeping people from seeing God. And based off of human tradition, right. it wasn't human, even the law. Right. And so <laughs> they, they were focused it. on yeah. worldly things, worldly rituals and rules, and they'd forgotten the heart of the Sabbath. They'd forgotten the heart of giving. Um, all of those things, the world had become their end unwittingly. They were blinded and they were deceived. And... And Jesus was more angry with them in the Gospels than anyone else because they were the ones who were supposed to be leading people to God and they were actually raising a barricade between people and God. And so um, if there's anything we need to avoid in the church and as Christians, it's being deceived in that same way and end up uh, having the Gospel and Christ serve worldly ends and therefore we compromise our message. Absolutely. That's so key for all of us to be aware of, you know, and as we, you know, we're, we're uh, pretty much at the end of our show, but as we, as we, as we finish up this episode, Mark, um, what's, what's one uh, takeaway for you? How can we apply uh, one or both of these chapters uh, to take a step to continue growing uh, more deeply in our faith? For me, I would probably point to those practices and disciplines that that are likely to show us when we're going to an extreme, when our motives are getting distorted, as well as dealing with fears and anxieties. I mean, anxiety is epidemic in our culture today, no more so um, with uh, young adults than with anyone else. I mean, that, that's documented. You hear those statistics all the time. 
And when it comes down to it, it's those same uh, disciplines of spending time alone with God, being in a community of fellow believers so that we're encouraged, we're lifted up. Um, Because the fact is, when we walk with God in the community of Christians, we, we will represent Christ rightly in the environment that God's placed us in, whether it's school, our work and jobs, um, our, our social uh, environment, and we won't distort the gospel, the real message, and it, it leads to our own peace um, when we learn to take control of our minds and recognize what's going on, recognizing the enemy's strategy that's behind some of the fears and anxieties. Absolutely. Um, well, on my end, I have a, maybe a couple um, recommendations for how to apply these couple chapters. First, in, yeah. in regards to anxiety, I would encourage our listeners, um, you know, the tactic was to look out into the future to all these possibilities of what could go wrong. Mm-hmm. And so I would say one really helpful thing to do is to take some time, maybe today or this week, and sit down and and look at the tangible, concrete ways that God has yeah. come through in your life because uh, He has, and He has answered prayers, and He has delivered you out of things, and He's taking He's taken us out of scary situations in the past. Yes. So I think just tangibly writing those down and mm-hmm. looking at it, it helps in, it helps inspire that faith and that confidence you know, and the trust for the future, um, Mm -hmm. that he's going to take care of us. No matter if everything goes right or wrong, he's still going to be with us. So I think that's one thing. And then secondly, I I would just reflect as far as for this last chapter, are there issues or causes right now in my life that's getting more of my devotion than my devotion with Jesus? Am I spending more time arguing on social media than I am reading a psalm and, and, and praying for other people? Or what am I, like, am I getting lopsided? Am I, am I getting uh, to an extreme? And that may also mean asking people close next to you. Like, hey, am I getting a little too hardcore with this or that? How would you characterize where I'm at right now? Mm, great, we, great practical advice. We really want to avoid that. And we all fall into it for sure. So... Anyways, Mark, hey, it was great uh, having this discussion with you today. Thanks for all your your awesome insight and and being here as always. You're welcome. (laughs) You inspire me. So Uh, it's it's great to have these conversations. Well, cool. I hope uh, for the listeners who've listened in, this has been helpful for you. Um, So thanks for tuning in. If you haven't already, just go ahead and uh, click that subscribe uh, on your favorite podcast app, whatever it is. And and if these episodes are helping you in any way, it would mean a lot to us um, if, if you would spread the word, share that, send the um, send this episode on to a friend, text it to him, whatever. Um, we would just encourage you to do that because we really do have a heart. We really do have a desire for Christians, you know, and, and young adults in specific. Shout out to Bethany Young Adults. Uh, but for us to just think a bit deeper about things so we can follow Christ more deeply. And so... Uh, we really hope that that you can do that. So, Mark, looking forward to next time. Hopefully it won't be several months <laughs> uh, in between uh, yes. now and then. But um, anyways, well, once again, thanks for joining us for Between the Pages. We'll, we'll, uh, 
Until next time. Yeah, until next time. All right. <laughs>